Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. My guest today has been a dominant figure in politics for decades, Jeff Greenfield. Early in his career, he was an aide and speechwriter to Senator Robert Kennedy. For years, worked with famed political consultant David Garth, and then transitioned into the media as a commentator for outlets including CBS, PBS, ABC, CNN, NBC, for decades, has been one of the smartest thinkers and writers on American politics. Jeff Greenfield, tell me a bit how you grew up. I grew up on the Upper West Side of New York to a dad who was a single practitioner lawyer, a mother who was a housewife, but then went back to work as a teacher when it came time to pay for college. I grew up in a family that was interested in politics interested in ideas, went to the public schools of New York. One of them was the Bronx High School of Science, where I proudly graduated in the lower half of my class because most of the class was inventing time machines and challenging experts on particle physics. I almost flunked every science course I took. So you ask, why did I go to Bronx Science? Because it was a public school for allegedly gifted kids. It was better than going to my neighborhood school. My dad was involved in a local democratic reform club, the first club that actually won an intra-party election against what was then the official democratic machine. They were traditional New Deal liberals. When I was 12, they joined a summer community that was founded back in the 30s by Norman Thomas socialists, young socialists, as a place where people of modest means could vacation for the summer. So I was surrounded by people who talked and thought about public policy. And do you remember some of your earliest political memories? Well, the first one, I realize this age may sound ludicrous. When I was nine years old, the New York Yankees are responsible for my political obsession. Uh, We spent the summer at my grandfather's cottage, and my dad would come up like Thursday night. Otherwise, it was me and my mom and my little sister. And I would listen to the Yankee games on radio every day because we didn't have a TV. And one day my mom said to me, "Uh, you can't have the radio today. Why not? Well, I want to listen to this Republican convention. For want of a better thing to do, I sort of was with her. This was the 1952 Republican convention, which was a knockdown, drag out fight. I mean, brawls on the floor, credentials, challenges. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew this was kind of cool. And what was this? And I got intrigued enough so that when the Democratic convention rolled around and I had to go to sleep, uh, I said, make sure you wake me up to tell me who was nominated. It may have gone to a third ballot. I can't remember. But anyway, I was hooked. And election night in November, having heard about all the excitement from 1948, I got my parents to agree to let me stay up because I assumed it would go late on into the night. Well, by eight o'clock, it was clear that Eisenhower was winning a landslide. And they said, OK, you can go to sleep now. And I said, wait, but what about the, the last minute shifts and who's going to win what. Now it's over. But from then on, I was a political junkie. In fact, in 56, I was spending the summer with my folks up at that summer community. And a friend of mine and I sneaked into the house of a guy who wasn't there. He had one of the few TVs up there so we could watch the Democratic convention. It just, it stuck. I thought politics was both significant, you know, important stuff and vastly entertaining. Yeah, I never stopped getting interested. I remember when I was 11, the New York governor's race, one of the closest in history between Avril Harriman and Irving Ives. 
in 56, I actually went to stuff envelopes for Adlai Stevenson. We did carry the West Side of Manhattan, not much else. I remember very early discovering, this has been overtaken by technology, that after a big election, like a presidential election or the midterm, the Thursday edition of the New York Times carried pages of results, every significant and even insignificant race, and I would devour them. The same way that on Sundays, I would devour the sports section of the New York Times because in those days they printed like the batting averages of every, I think just about every player. In my generation, there's a really interesting link between people who followed baseball very early and people who followed politics very early. I'm not sure why, but I found that to be true. And I don't think it's true of younger generations because other sports have surpassed baseball. But when I grew up, New York had three baseball teams. The Yankees always won. And baseball was the national pastime. And there's a as yet unexplained link there. So you've described someone interested in politics in depth at a very young age. But how do you decide you want to work in politics? How do you get a foot in the door? By the way, I wasn't the only one who thought that politics would intrigue me. I remember when I was 17, I think it was my, my parents gave me the making of the president in 1960. And I remember my mom saying to me when I was in college, well, you know, you're never going to, you can't get to be president because you're, you're Jewish and all, but you could become Ted Sorensen. You know, you could become an aide to a president. The way this happened to me, which is one of those reasons I've always believed that fate and the smallest kind of accident have enormous impact the subject of a number of my books. So I, was in, I went to college. I was editor of my college paper. Because of that, I got interested in issues like civil liberties and freedom as press and constitutional law. Went to law school. Thanks to a scholarship, I went to Yale and did, did well. And I learned my senior year that the office of Robert Kennedy would hire one law school graduate as kind of a clerk, a fellow, whatever you want to call it. And I believe that they only, I think they only interested in Harvard and Yale people, which which is unfortunate in a lot of ways, although I guess fortunate for me. So I was competing for a Supreme Court clerkship because if you're in law school, that's allegedly the top of the ladder. Thank God I didn't get one. I thought, yeah, this would be an interesting thing, going to work Kennedy. And I'll tell you that how I changed my mind about him in a minute. So simultaneously, I was trying to get into this seminar, third-year law school seminar that was packed full. I went to the teacher. I said, I really, really want to do this. He said, well, I'll tell you what, come tomorrow and we'll see how you do. And I was loaded for bear. I really worked hard on it. As it happens, that teacher had been a law school classmate of one of Robert Kennedy's legislative assistants who called him the next day to check on me and got a very positive and highly unrepresentative report. And that's how I wound up right out of law school working in Robert Kennedy's office. I am reasonably sure that had I gotten the Supreme Court clerkship, I would have taken it out of a misguided notion of, well, that's the best thing you can have. But in terms of what I was interested in, really fortunate that that did not happen. Now, when Robert Kennedy first appeared on the scene, my parents, like a lot of liberal Jewish people, had a lot of suspicion about Bobby Kennedy. He'd worked for Joe McCarthy. He seemed to be a kind of a Specter Javert prosecutor. And he was very Catholic, and anti-Catholicism is the anti-Semitism of a lot of liberals. I mean, had so many kids. So when he came to New York to run for Senate, my inclination was not to vote for him. He was a carpetbagger. And then I saw one of his commercials, which were basically Q&As, and they weren't speech. And he was talking to a bunch of college students. One of them said, well, aren't you using this as a stepping stone to the presidency? And instead of saying what 99% of politicians would have said, I haven't even thought about that. He said, let's say you're right. I'm going to have to be reelected. I won't be reelected unless I've done a good job. And then in 1972, 
if I decide to run, I will have been a good senator for eight years. I don't see how New York loses. And I thought, huh, you know, that on the bullshit measurement, that's pretty low. And then early in his Senate, the first few months, he had given a series of speeches about poverty where he was not following the normal liberal line. He was talking about in the ghetto, black men might have been looking for work and a good job. We've given them a welfare check and told them we have nothing useful for them to do. He was talking about poverty in a way that was different, that recognized that welfare was not only angered the people paying for it, but it demeaned the people who were getting it and that jobs were the key. And I just thought this guy was thinking in a very different way. By 1967, when I graduated law school, he had also broken with the war. As someone who was around the U.S. Senate of the 1960s, a time of some real legendary figures, by this time you'd been a political junkie yourself for years. So aside from Senator Kennedy, who were some of the other senators in your time as a staffer who you saw up close and personal that made an impression on you? I'm laughing because one of them made an impression, but not the way you mean, was Russell Long of Louisiana, who I remember as an aide, you were allowed to go on the Senate floor sit next to a senator when he's giving speeches. And I saw Russell Long clearly several sheets to the wind. He had a he had a drinking problem. Of the other senators, I have to run this through in my mind. Most of my time was spent writing speeches. I did not have a job that Peter Edelman did of working with other senators and their staffs. I know that George McGovern she just seemed like a really good guy. Robert Kennedy said about him, he's the most decent man in the Senate. And he, once, he, he amended that by saying maybe he's the only decent man in the Senate, although he didn't mean that. Jacob Javits was a real, very hard worker and also a very, very serious. Somebody said about Jacob Javits, if you ask him what time it is, he'll tell you how to make a watch. He was a real liberal Republican back in the days when they were real liberal Republicans. Robert Kennedy was such an inspirational figure and understandably has been lionized after his tragic death, but he was also a very savvy political figure. Sometimes you'll see him described as perhaps the most politically savvy or the best political instincts among all the brothers. Amidst all the inspirational speeches, were there times you saw flashes of Robert Kennedy, the political operator as well? For instance, I remember he had a speech to the Postal Union, and I wrote a speech, and he basically said, no, he said, with this group, you have to say what they want to hear in the sense that I believe in the dues check off, believe in public employee unions. That was an example where he just understood the politics of it. One time that I had listened to his top aide pitched an idea <laughs> the aide was very big on about adding part-time workers to the police force. And that turned out that that was not a good thing because the police unions were against it. So he certainly understood that. But I think the most dramatic example of political calculation, whether he was going to challenge Lyndon Johnson. There were two things that he said over and over. He said, if I challenge Lyndon Johnson, it's all going to be seen as personal because there was enormous personal antipathy between the two of them. It's never going to be taken as an honest challenge about Vietnam or the fact that the country was tearing itself apart. And the second thing that he was really concerned about was that he said, if I run, it's going to split the party. And it's going to elect Nixon in weighing political consequences of it and the political way it would be seen was very much on his mind. On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. On April 5th, Robert Kennedy delivers a speech that many consider one of his more compelling, enduring speeches. 
He does give an off-the-cuff speech that night of April 4th to a crowd in in Indianapolis, the night of the assassination that is also very famous, quoting Eschelis, that many people are familiar with. But the speech he gave the next day in Cleveland is considered by many to be one of his finest. You were among the small group of aides involved in that process. What stands out to you still to this day from that 24-hour period? The speech was worked on by Adam Walensky, his chief speechwriter, and I was writing stuff, and I think Ted Sorensen back east was contributing. He came into my room after giving that very famous speech in Indianapolis, and the first thing he said was, that Oswald fellow set something loose in this country. It was the only time I ever heard him reference his brother's assassin. It was clear that what he said that night on April 4th had stirred up memories because he also referenced in that ad lib speech the fact that his brother was had been killed and he'd been tempted to hate. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. It was clearly a moment that had hit him very hard because he couldn't help but think of the fact that he'd lost a brother to that. And it was why the speech he gave the next day in Cleveland was so centered on what I think what he called the mindless menace of violence. And there's an interesting thing about that. In the speech, he says, what has violence ever accomplished? And Bill Buckley wrote about that. Well, in fact, you know, it's accomplished a lot in, in many horrible ways. And part of the wretched irony of that is that his death was a kind of refutation of that belief. I mean, what violence did was to deprive the country of a potential president and at the least a young, vibrant, original thinker who would have had influence in the Democratic Party and in American politics for God knows how long. He was 42 when he was killed. And so for me, the eloquence of that speech, and I can say that because I was not the principal author in any way, was countermanded in a way by the horrible reality of what happened a few weeks later.
And it was a 10-minute speech tackling themes of violence and racism and discrimination and opportunity. Is there a stanza in the speech that was and is most meaningful to you? One of the parts in that speech is where Kennedy talks about the violence of institutions, meaning a system that deprives people of work, an unfair criminal justice system. That part of the speech is in some ways quite radical because he's not just talking about people who go out with guns and knives, and, but he's talking about the institutionalization of violence. But this much is clear. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. For there is another kind of violence slower, but just as deadly destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference, inaction, and decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. This is the slow destruction of a child by hunger and schools without books and homes without heat in the winter. And this too afflicts us all. And the other part is what it means when you teach somebody to hate. It's all written, by the way, when you teach a man to hate. This is 1968, the end when the appeal is to become brothers and countrymen once again. You wouldn't write the speech that way because it's gender specific, but that's 50 something years ago. There is something that I think is often a misconception that prior to his assassination, Senator Kennedy was on track to become the Democratic nominee for president in 1968 or had a good chance to go win it at the convention. Tell me if I'm wrong, but my read on it has always been that by June 68, Humphrey had the institutional support to win that nomination. Can you can you set the record straight in either direction? It would have been a real uphill fight. Fred Dutton, the de facto campaign manager, said at the time, we were losing altitude. And the reason was that California was the next to last primary. Two weeks later would have been New York, which would not have been a picnic because there were a lot of McCarthy supporters in New York. And he did not win California by as much as they had wanted. The whole point about California was to prove to the Democratic Party, this is the candidate who can beat Nixon. And his victory over McCarthy was under 50%. And more to the point, in almost all of the states in 1968, the delegates were not selected in primaries. It was a closed system. In places like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, it would have been very tough to dislodge those delegates. After 40 years, I wrote my version of how he might have won, a book called Then Everything Changed, which are three alternate history stories. And the one that I spent most time on was Bobby, you know, had he survived. And it would have meant challenging the unit rule in which some states gave all their delegates to whoever got the most votes. If you win 50% of the delegates, you get 100%, which the Democratic Party had supposedly outlawed. There were some delegations there that were segregated, Mississippi and Georgia, I think. There would have been an effort to embarrass Humphrey, who after all had become famous with his 1948 civil rights speech by pointing out that his nomination would come with the support of segregated state delegations and unfair delegate rules. So the question is, what the strategy would have been was to go around the country, stage huge rallies, maybe even stage mock primaries, but try to prove to the Democrats that this was the winner. And it would have hinged on whether or not any chance would have rested on Mayor Daley 
coming out for Kennedy. There's a book that suggests that that would have happened. You have to think about how that would have changed the whole Democratic convention had Richard Daley been a Bobby Kennedy supporter rather than throwing the cops at demonstrators who would have been much reduced in number because it was a chance for a peace candidate to win. That's a long-winded way of saying the odds were against him. Fred Dutton told me at one point he thought that Bobby would take the vice presidency if Humphrey offered it because he said he's a Roman and he goes where the power is. I don't know how much power there would have been. You know, you can play out all kinds of different scenarios, but I think the odds were against it, but they were not impossible. Had he survived an assassination attempt, I think the whole dynamic of the race would have changed in the same way that Ronald Reagan, having survived an assassination attempt, was a recipient of enormous goodwill. I mean, eight weeks after King, for Bobby to have survived, it would have been a kind of, oh, thank God, we almost lost him. That's my best reading of it. And in your role as a speechwriter, what kind of feedback would you get from Robert Kennedy? What type of eye did he have for his own speeches? One of the things about him that was most impressive was that, well, he was not in a formal sense an intellectual. He drilled it down. He did not accept the obvious. So if you contrast the way Bobby spoke about poverty with the way most conventional liberals did, you'll see the difference. The very first I was on his staff, he had me come to a, an education committee meeting. They had just a couple of years ago, the first federal aid to education law had been passed. And Bobby was hammering the head of the Office of Education. It wasn't in the department at that point to say, how come the IQ of black kids goes down between third and sixth grade? What's happened with all this money? So it wasn't enough to say, okay, let's spend a lot of money on schools. He wanted to know what was going on in those schools. Why weren't the kids most in need being reached? And that's pretty much how he thought about a lot of issues. The great speeches he gave about poverty and jobs, which were not micro, you know, that's mostly Adam Walensky's work, show you a guy thinking through the core of these issues. And so he would look at a speech, he said, where does this come from? Or, well, have you talked to, he had a whole range of people, you know, he would reach out because he was a, a kind of a would-be president in exile. He'd say, oh, why don't you call? And he would name an education expert or a poverty expert. And that's what I got from working with him. You were a speechwriter for Senator Kennedy, for also also for New York Mayor John Lindsay. Do you have a theory on what makes the right symbiosis between the speechwriter and the speaker? Yes. The basic thing is that you have to understand the thinking and the preference of the speech giver, because you can write a great speech, and if it doesn't fit the speaker, it's going to sound all wrong. I mean, the extreme example of this is Trump. When he's reading a speech that Steve Miller is writing, he almost, he's a bored to tears. Just like he's, he's reading a, a manual from a computer. And then when he gets to talk about his own rather odd worldview, he becomes alive and he tells stories and he makes insults. I think I'm remembering John Glenn when he was running, gave us some speech. He was going to quote some poet. It just didn't work. Not because he wasn't a smart guy, but he wasn't, that's not the kind of language that John Glenn would normally use. You have to listen to this person and get some sense of how that speech giver would be comfortable talking. I guess it's, I mean, in a, in a way, it may sound like an odd, it's like designing a suit for somebody. The suit has to fit the body. It can be the most beautiful suit in the world, but if it doesn't fit the body, it's not going to look good. That's, the, I think, the same thing with a speech, which is why it's generally not a good idea to write a speech without knowing the speech giver, or at least being familiar with what the speech figure thinks. 
There's a great short documentary on YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the podcast show notes. A 10, 15 minute documentary about David Garth narrated by Jeff Greenfield. David Garth, widely considered the first real political consultant, the first real media consultant as we'd recognize them today. Famous for writing ads, including coining the phrase, the second toughest job in America for New York City Mayor John Lindsay. Jeff, how did you connect with David Garth? What did you learn from him? So after Bobby died, I went to work for John Lindsay, basically because I think he was the only other white guy who could talk to black folks. That may be an exaggeration. So working with Lindsay, when he was running for re-election, his media guy was Dave Garth, this pugnacious kind of a street fighter of a guy. And after the campaign, David said, why don't you come work with me? I know you want to write in even-numbered years. There'll be a lot of work. And in odd-numbered years, there may be less, and then you'll have more time to write. So I spent six or seven years working with Garth, writing commercials, strategizing on debate, working on speeches, did a whole bunch of campaigns. And it taught me, I think it was really great experience for when I then became somebody who covered campaigns, because I thought I understood something about what goes on literally behind closed doors and how you think about campaigns and, and how you use language. And I'm also proud that we would have probably not survived today because we did for ads, I know this sounds odd, we did pretty substantive stuff in our campaigns. One of the things Garth believed was that, you, you know, since people were going to see these commercials over and over, load them up with facts, put a lot of words on the lower third of the screen because people are going to see these ads repeatedly and they may, they'll take away something different each time. We also, and I think this was, this was something impressive about Dick, because he was always seen as this kind of bare knuckle fighter. One of the people on his staff was in effect a kind of an ombudsman. It was her job to vet the commercial scripts. And if she thought they, they could not withstand scrutiny, she said, no, you can't do that ad. That's not right. So the idea of just saying anything we felt like was not how we worked. We didn't focus group. The way we did slogans was that I would, we both smoked cigars. I would sit in Dave's office or lie down. We'd smoke and talk and play with a slogan until we came up with something. And one of the things Garth was famous for was the longest slogans in the world. <laughs> it wasn't make America great again or whatever. I'll give you an example, Zach. In 1974, we took the campaign of Hugh Carey, a Brooklyn congressman, running for governor. And he was running against the candidate that both the reformers and the regulars wanted. Fortunately, uh, Hugh Carey's brother had an oil company and under the rules of those days was able to throw a lot of money at the campaign. But the commercial, our point in the commercial was Carey as a congressman had done a lot. And this other guy, Howard Samuels, really didn't have much of a record. And it was the Watergate year. So the slogan was, this year. Before they tell you what they want to do, make them show you what they've done. I, immodestly will tell you that's a commercial works on a lot of levels. This year, meaning Watergate, you have a right to be skeptical. Show versus tell, right? What you tell writers, don't tell, show. And they, meaning this amorphous group of whoever they are. This year, before they tell you what they want to do, make them show you what they've done. And then the congressman's record was the feature of the commercials. A longer slogan. The year before, in 1973, we did the campaign of Tom Bradley, uh, running for mayor of Los Angeles, uh, a black councilman, former cop. He had lost the campaign in 1969 to a race-baiting bigot, Mayor Sam Yorty. He run for many other offices. He always was looking for something else. And we also were going right at the fact that we knew that a lot of voters had spoken or not. There were prejudices that had to be dealt with. 
you know, one of which was, well, blacks, you know, welfare, you know what that is. So the slogan, honest to God, Zach, the slogan for Bradley was, isn't it time we had a mayor who wanted to be mayor? Vote for Tom Bradley. He'll work as hard for his paycheck as you do for yours. Do you see what that slogan is trying to do? Emphasizing hard work. The single ad I'm most proud of having ever done was an ad for Bradley where he looks at camera. He says, the last time I ran for mayor, I lost. Maybe some of you thought I'd favor one group against another. But I couldn't win that way because Los Angeles has the smallest black population of any big city in America. And then he explains he wouldn't want to win that way. But the point about that ad was Dave never said this. But one of the principles that he always believed in was if there's an elephant in the room, tell the people you see the elephant. You know, we know some of you think Tom Bradley's going to favor blacks over whites. We didn't say this because you're because you got a prejudice there. And we want to talk about that. I think that's a tactic that almost nobody uses. You mentioned that many of the campaigns of this era had a more substantive feel than we might be used to today. I've also heard you tell the story before that one of the key elements of the Lindsay re-election in 1969 was not only due to substance, but due to serendipity of Lindsay's re-election coinciding with a miraculous run by the New York Mets. Well, it was a very tough year for Lindsay. There had been a brutal teacher strike. There had been a police strike. There had been a firefighter's walkout. There had been a, you know, a lot of stuff. Uh, running on the Liberal Party line and as an independent. And he lost the Republican primary. As it happened, 1969 was the year that the perennially last place Mets began to make a real run for glory. The truth of the matter is John Lindsay didn't give a rat's ass about baseball, as far as we could tell. But all of us on his staff understood that it would be a really good thing for John Lindsay to identify himself with the Mets. And so he started going to games Uh, He was told in no uncertain terms, no, he could not leave in the middle of the game. The night they won the pennant, he went into the locker room of the Mets and and had champagne poured on his head. And that must have been worth $100,000. I think the picture was on the front page of the New York Times. And so the whole spirit, the night the Mets won the series, it was like VE Day. There was confetti, you know, there was a massive street celebration. And it was a feel-good experience at a time when not many people were feeling good about New York. And there is absolutely no question that the campaign milked that for every minute it could. Like most normal, well-adjusted people, I found myself recently watching a William F. Buckley firing line episode at one in the morning on YouTube, uh, and you showed up. And you showed up, I think, as a college student, maybe right out of college, posing a question to his guest, who I believe this was an episode with a leader of a black separatist movement. You spent some time around Buckley. You grew to know William F. Buckley well over the years. What can you tell me about that relationship? Well, it started as what he called an inquisitor, three young people, and then evolved into one what he called examiner. The last 10 minutes of the program, somebody with a different point of view. It was me, Harriet Coppell, Al Lowenstein, and I found him very engaging. He had me come to London to do the show. We had a country house near where he grew up. He would come to dinner again very shortly before he died. My wife and I went out up to him and had a meal with him. My wife really liked him. He was a very, he was an engaging fellow. His politics were not mine. Uh, The National Review's record on race back in the 50s is the black mark on the magazine and frankly on Buckley's lack of understanding. One of the things that was really striking about him was how much he liked the company of people who didn't agree with him. I think he went skiing every winter with Galbraith. He invited people like Al Lowenstein and others to be on his show. The reason why he, I think reached out to me as I had written a piece 
about a debate that he had at Yale with a left-wing minister, William Sloan Coffin. And it was pretty cheeky, the piece. And he liked it. And he loved Murray Kempton, the, the socialist commentator, columnist for the New York Post and other places. He just enjoyed that kind of engagement. I think I remember once going to his house and bringing him a Cuban cigar. And his wife, who really did talk like some caricature out of a book, Ducky, you're not going to smoke one of those terrible communist cigars. He laughed. I know. I said to her, think of it as he's burning the agricultural product of a communist dictatorship, which he found amusing. He just generally was a guy who lived a very full life. You read some of his books that are the count of his, like, it's astonishing. And all, or at least most, of the Buckley Firing Line episodes are available on YouTube through the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Is there one episode you participated in that is the most memorable or that people should try to hunt down to see the Jeff Greenfield of the late 60s, 1970s? It's actually something I failed to do. Margaret Thatcher was on, and I asked her you know, what it meant that she was the first woman to pretend she wasn't prime minister yet. And she said, do you mind if I tell you that's an exceedingly foolish question? And I did not have the wit to say, do you mind if I tell you that it's not? Mr. Jeff Greenfield, uh, Ms. Thatcher is American author. We found in, in America over the last year when there's been a great infusion of women running for office, some of whom have had success precisely because, and here's where I think there may be an analogy, their conservative ideology helps to overcome one of the stereotypical objections to women. I'm wondering if in your own case, your reputation and your ideological stand helped you within the conservative party overcome some of the stereotypical objections that might have been raised to a woman holding office. Honestly, dislike, I regard these questions as very trivial. You don't mind my saying so. <laughs> and if I did, what would I do? Uh. <laughs> but look, we look at a person to see if they've got the abilities now. But anyway, that's memorable. I do remember one of the things about Buckley was that on the times when I would actually say something that maybe scored a point, he would acknowledge it. You know, I remember challenging one of his guests on the notion that you couldn't define a, a just society. And I said, well, would you consider it unjust if a society didn't let people vote because of their skin color? And the guest said, well, yes. I said, okay, you just defined the first element of a just society. And Buckley went, yeah, what about that? He would not come to the defense of his political ally if somebody else made a telling point. That was part of what made him an appealing guy. So at this point, it sounds like you've got a good thing going on, operating at a high level in politics, living in New York, electing mayors and governors and beyond. What made you move on from the political consultant world of David Garth and transition into the media? It came clear to me by 1970 that I could not both do politics and write about it. There were too many potential conflicts. David wanted me to become a partner in the firm, and I said, no, uh, I'm going to leave and freelance. For two years, I freelanced. It was quite a difference in income between working for Dave Garth and just freelancing. And then, because I'd written a lot about television for the New York Times, the CBS said, we're starting this new show called Sunday Morning. And we need a TV critic. And the first two people we asked can't do it. So would you like to take a crack at it? And I said, sure, that sounds like fun. And a year later, CBS said to me, so this is like in May. I said, you know, this upcoming convention, we're going to have Jim Kilpatrick and Bill Moyers as a team. Would you like to be the third person on that? And I went, oh, yeah. You know, that was like being invited to play center field for the New York Yankees. And it just, that's where it started. I just, you know, did that, began to spend more and more of my time working for CBS, and then in 83, 
when they they weren't that interested in having me do politics, so I went to Nightline. 14 years at Nightline, and then a decade or so at CNN, went back to CBS, and that's where I spent my time at. Your media career spans five decades, maybe six even. You've had roles or projects from CBS to ABC to NBC to CNN to PBS. Just to scratch the surface, what era, what role for you was the most fun? What was the most professionally fulfilling for you? Probably night one. Aaron Sorkin had me as a consultant when he did his program Newsnight. And when I met with him, the first thing he said to me was, just describe your journalistic utopia. And I said, well, I lived it. Because both Koppel and the executive producer, the best one, Tom Batag, had incredibly strong values, not just about journalism, but about everything else. They would have editorial meetings every morning where anybody could pitch an idea, whether you were the senior producer or a desk assistant. Koppel was particularly driven to get stories right. I remember before I joined Nightline, he did a show one Friday night on herpes, and the next Monday he came on and he said, we completely blew it. We did a terrible show last night. We're going to try it again and do it right. <laughs> no, that's, and because Nightline was devoted to one story, we could do things in depth. Instead of two-minute pieces on the evening news, we correspondents got to do, you know, how much time do you need? Five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes? What do you need here? It was that, you know. Now, CNN was probably the most fun because I was kind of a sub-anchor. And during the 2000 election, it was like the world had suddenly become in living technicolor. But journalistically, I think Nightline was the best place for me. This is not meant to be as sycophantic as it will come across, but I'm curious how you think you were able to get so good at being an on-air political commentator. You were in demand by broadcast networks, cable networks for decades, yet you didn't start as a household name. You weren't Stephanopoulos making the jump to media, who'd already been a political celebrity of sorts. You weren't a Carville or a Rove who moved on to do a lot of media work after politics, but had been propelled by a really high profile position on a campaign, on a presidential campaign. Nor were you a seasoned journalist who was out there getting scoops or breaking news for the most part. Yet somehow you became in demand just to give your two cents on what was going on in the political world at any given moment. You had real staying power because you were interesting, compelling, doing the job. What skill, what knack did you have for it? Uh, I don't know how to answer that question. I just hung around. You know, I th think it's, if you're still allowed to quote Woody Allen, and maybe you're not, I think he said 80% of life is just showing up. One of the things I do know is because I wasn't trained as a correspondent, you know, I don't have the jut jaw. I don't have that kind of look. So basically what I would try to do when I would do either pieces or analysis is just talk to people without over-dramatizing it. I think I was because I was a writer conscious of not speaking in cliches. I did use a lot more humor than a lot of my colleagues did because I think humor is a teaching tool. You know, I was able to stay reasonably gainfully employed for uh, several decades. I mean, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm laughing because early on I gave a talk to some journalism society and during the question and answer period, some someone got up and she said, you know, I'm always glad to see you uh, when you're on TV. And before I could puff myself up, she said, because it's so obvious you weren't hired because of your looks. I said, gee, thanks. But I think there is something to that. You know, I couldn't, I didn't have the chops of a wartime correspondent or somebody who could deliver dramatic, compelling prose. So I just talked plain English. I wrote plain English and I did immodestly come with a fair amount of political knowledge. What piece, what segment you were a part of got the most reaction? It's a very good question. I mean, look, the pieces that, for instance, when I went back to CBS, I did a piece about 
doo-wop music, Music of My Youth, which I had actually written part of a book about. I interviewed Anthony of the Imperials, and I got a lot of reaction from that from people of my age who said that really struck a chord. I also think, well, I also did a piece that won an Emmy for Sunday Morning about Bobby Kennedy, which drew a lot of, a lot of reaction. Most of my pieces... I don't, I don't do heart-tugging pieces. I don't do pieces that visiting a refugee camp. You know, my pieces are more, I think, frankly, more cerebral. And so they don't get that kind of reaction. But cumulatively, the coverage of the 2000 campaign, I was getting an awful lot of feedback because I was doing a regular thing for CNN called Unconventional Wisdom, where we would talk about the campaign with people who were not necessarily political people, musicians, writers, athletes. And I got good response from that. What are your pet peeves that you see from TV pundits today? Not thinking about accuracy of their analysis necessarily, but what's a habit or a crutch, something that you hear someone say, irrespective of ideology, that's an automatic eye roll from you? Iconic. People now cannot report the death of any semi-well-known person without saying iconic. The word has crept into the vocabulary of broadcasters, and it's teeth rattling to me. Uh, it just... It's a pet peeve, right? I'm allowed to be irrational. I just find that annoying. I also find when I watch the NBC Nightly News and they go to a correspondent in the field, the correspondent is, I believe, legally required to begin every answer with, that's right, Lester. <laughs> Once, I want to hear a correspondent say, actually, you're completely missing the point. Probably wouldn't employ much, but and not, nothing against Lester. You know? So th- there are little quirks like that. The other one, as long as you've asked, and this pops up in print more, is the word suddenly. Suddenly this happens. Now, an avalanche happens suddenly, but I'm not sure that a change in the political climate really often happens suddenly. There are, um, oh, the other one? How such and such changed this forever? How do they know it changed it forever? Really? 20,000 years from now, it's still going to have changed that way? These are little quirks of language that set the teeth on edge. You are a different breed of pundit in that you had a grasp not just on the political rough and tumble, but also were more hip to pop culture uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. You're conversant in The Grateful Dead. I read a piece of yours from the 90s where you quote the contemporary political philosopher, Homie the Clown. Do you still feel plugged in on that front? Has the ship sailed? Certainly don't feel plugged into the current pop culture. No. So I have to reference it in a much broader way. One of my favorite pieces I ever wrote was for Slate Magazine back in 2008 called Why Bugs Bunny Always Beats Daffy Duck. That if you can, in a presidential contest, figure out who's Bugs and who's Daffy, you're going to know who wins. That's an example. I can remember when Clinton appointed Ron Brown Secretary of Commerce. After all this talk of change and all, it was, you know, a consummate insider. And I did quote, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. But these are references from my musical tastes. I mean, I don't think I'd be particularly good if I tried to reference Lil Nas or you know, even Beyonce, because I, I don't follow that stuff now. But it served me well, because sometimes that's a very good communications tool. I'm sure more than once uh, at the end of the campaign, I have observed what a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> but, and sometimes you can do that, because there are some folks like the Beatles, and even to some extent, folks like the Dead, have resonance beyond a particular period. But certainly, I'm not plugged into this pop culture, no. What are you working on now that you're the most excited about? Not much. I've stepped back from TV. They don't have room for I'm I'm just working on stuff with politics. There are two different projects that are just born in that I might or might not have a role in, but they're way too amorphous for me to describe. 
I'm content with working less than I have. I'm 79. My view of this is expressed by Billy Wilder, the great director, writer, who at a dinner in his honor, I guess he was 90-something, instead of a speech, he said, he just told this story. He says, a man goes to a doctor, and he says, I can't pee. I have the same urges. I stress nothing. The doctor says, let me ask you how old you are. The man says, I'm 93. The doctor says, you know what? You've peed enough. <laughs> and that's how I feel about it. I don't have any major, you know, will I get inspired at some point? There were a couple of satirical books I started and then filed away when Trump became president. Tom Lehrer said that he gave up satire when Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I sympathize with that. I wrote a bunch of alternate history books, and when Trump emerged, somebody said, well, why don't you write the alternate history of this? I said, I can't. This is the alternate history. Given your pop culture background, sensibility, some of the interesting experiences I know you've had, let me throw two or three short things at you as we close to hear you talk about a bit. I'll start early 1971, Madison Square Garden. You were at the first Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier fight, dubbed the fight of the century. Can you paint a picture of what that was like? Single most powerful event I've ever been to. Conventions debates, inaugurals, whatever. Walking into the garden, thanks to Dave Garth, we'd gotten some decent seats. The emotion was, two people died of heart attacks during that fight in the audience. And when the two of them came, when Ali and Fraser came in to meet each other at center ring, it felt like the garden was pulsating. Just the, the sheer intensity of that moment is something that I've never seen equal at all. Well, I was all for Ali. I'm no boxing expert. It was the knockdown that decided it. I think Ali had never been knocked down before, and I'm not sure about that, but I think that was the first time he'd ever been knocked down in a fight. Give me the Jeff Greenfield go-to order at the famous Upper West Side Jewish Deli Barney Greengrass. Ah, uh, if I'm in the mood for a certain kind of meal, that's, yeah. Well, it depends. Some of the time, it's a Novi sturgeon on a toasted poppy seed bagel with just a little bit of cream cheese. Or if I'm in the mood to, if there's an ambulette outside, I would have a pastrami and chopped liver sandwich on rye. I mean, I always make it a point when I'm back in New York to go to Barney Greengrass. And a couple of times we've had Gary, the grandson who owns it, they, they will ship. And for my birthday a year or two ago, my wife surprised me with the shipment of Barney Greengrass, Novi, sturgeon, bagels, rugola. Yeah, you know, there's soul food and there's soul food. And for me, that's, that's my soul food. And let's end with this. Give me your favorite song or your favorite lyric, something that's meaningful to you from the rock group, the band. Oh, there's so many songs that come to mind. It's not a particular lyric, but the song Acadian Driftwood, which is not one of their better known songs. The story of the people who had to flee down, flee Canada and wound up some of them down in, in Louisiana. It's just a beautiful song. They signed a treaty and our homes were taken. Loved ones forsaken, they didn't give a damn. Try to raise a family, end up the enemy. Over what went down on the plains of Abraham. Acadian driftwood, gypsy There's just too many. I mean, there, there, there are 
they're just fantastic musicians. In 1968, after the summer, I didn't go to the convention, a bunch of us went up to a friend's house in, in Martha's Vineyard, eight or ten of us, spent a week there after Labor Day, and we had the first band album, Music from Big Pink, and played it over and over and over again. It's a combination of great storytelling. They're watching them play on stage where every song they change instruments. And the lyrics that Robbie Robertson mostly wrote were just incredibly powerful. Well, I don't think there's going to be another podcast anytime soon that references both Russell Long, Jacob Javits, Little Anthony, and Little Nas. This was truly a pleasure in the political trenches yourself and then one of the smartest observers, writers, thinkers, talkers on politics for decades. Jeff Greenfield, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure to be with you, Zach. Really good interview. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.